Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Jay, uh, for leading us. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in worship today. I want to say hello to everyone who's joining us online this morning, gathering together in worship near and far, wherever you're at. Glad you can join us today. Happy Palm Sunday to everyone out there. As we begin Holy Week today, I'm so excited to dive into the scripture that we're going to look at um, and see what God's Word can show us. Uh, But before we do that, I did want to take a moment right now here at the top and just pause and acknowledge that uh, April is Autism Awareness Month. And Kayla and I have many friends, many loved ones who uh, are on the autism spectrum themselves or they are a parent to a child who's been diagnosed with autism. And we just wanted to recognize right here, right now, and affirm um, that each person has been created by God with infinite value, infinite worth, and dignity. And in our own unique ways, we all reflect God's image and God's character. And so we love you, we stand with you and support you, and we're so glad that you're a part of our church community. Well, the Easter theme for North Bible Church, uh, as we we lead up to Easter Sunday next week, is victory. We all like winning, don't we? I love winning, and it reminded me of a time in my life where I experienced a lot of winning. When I was a middle schooler playing basketball, uh, 7th and 8th grade, our team was familiar with winning. We went back-to-back as district champions, and I got to be a part of the team. I played guard. And by that, more specifically, I meant that I guarded the end of the bench. I was like one of the most scrawny kids in the school, one of the smallest guys. But there were, there were games where the lead got up to a significant enough margin that the coach felt comfortable putting me in the game. And one such time, I got put in the game like when the other team was shooting free throws, right? And so I got subbed in. After the first shot, I came in, and normally, you know, as a guy of my stature, I would be out, like, back past the three-point line, but for whatever reason, there was an opening in the paint, and so I went in, mixed it up with the bigs, and after the shot, the guy missed a shot, and improbably, I got the rebound. It was like a minor miracle, and for someone who had just come into the game, I was already in the thick of the action and my adrenaline kind of took over at the time and honestly kind of blacked out mentally. (laughs) And so I see this lane right to the hoop, wide open for a layup. I go up for the shot, I miss the shot, but uh, somehow, some way, I get the rebound again and like just then I kind of snap back into reality and I looked around, I see my coaches yelling, I see my teammates yelling, they're all saying, Adam, you're shooting at the wrong, basket. And it was such an embarrassing moment for me in front of my, my teammates, in front of all the people at the school that had come to watch. I was so utterly humiliated. And our team ended up winning the game and going on and winning, you know, the district tournament and everything like that. But it never really sat right with me. I kind of decided in that moment, this is my last season of organized basketball. I'm not going to play next, next year. And uh, it it just kind of hurt. It was awkward. It was humiliating. And one of the things that Palm Sunday reveals to us 
is that we like winning on our own terms. We like to have this full control over every aspect of what's going on, right? Whether it's uh, the game plan, the playbook, the execution, or even the celebration. We love having total control over everything. And right now, in this season that we're in, let's just be honest, that control has been taken away from us. And the triumphal entry passage that we're going to look at today, it reframes what it is that's being won and who is really in control when Jesus comes riding into town. And so if you have your Bibles at home, I'd like you to get to John chapter 12. We're going to dive into this passage today. Obviously, all four Gospels recount the triumphal entry, but I like John's uh, version for, for several reasons. And as we get ready to dive deeper into this passage, I do want to highlight a couple themes that I'd like for us to consider. Themes like victory, themes like humility, and expectations. And I'm going to be reading out of the NIV version. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. And so the context for this passage is that this takes place on the Sunday before Passover. So why we call it Palm Sunday. Your Bibles in verse 12 might say something like the feast or the festival, but it's in reference to the Passover celebration. We know that the Passover begins at sundown on Friday. And one of the reasons I like John here is John gives us this timeline of what has led to this place. In John chapter 11, Jesus is called to the city of Bethany, which is right outside Jerusalem, because his friends Mary and Martha are trying to get a hold of them. Their brother Lazarus had died. And if you know the most, you know, the easiest memory verse, I'm going to pause for just a second because our screen has frozen. Okay. Sorry for the technical difficulties, but John gives us a timeline of what has led up to John chapter 12. In John chapter 11, Jesus is called to the city of Bethany right outside Jerusalem. Mary and Martha are there. Their brother Lazarus had passed away. And everyone's favorite memory verse, John 11:35, Jesus wept. And Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is an amazing miracle, one of Jesus' most significant miracles that he has performed thus far. And obviously the word starts to, to get around town, not just in Bethany, but even filters down into Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders at the time, they started really in earnest right here in John chapter 11, where they hatched a plan to kill Jesus. And so it's like a biblical like murder-for-hire scenario. It doesn't just happen in Oklahoma these days. 
But Jesus knows what's going on, and he decides to withdraw a little bit to the wilderness. There's this wilderness area around a, a smaller city called Ephraim, and he goes to hide out. He's not scared. He's not, like, running away from this, but it's more like a calculated move, and he's just biding his time because he knows Passover is right around the corner. And that's what leads us up to the beginning of John chapter 12, verse 1, where John writes that it was six days before the Passover. And that's when Jesus comes out of his social distancing in the wilderness, and he returns to the city of Bethany. He comes back to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house. They have, uh, a, they have dinner together. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with this costly perfume. And another crowd starts to form. People are like, Jesus is back. You know, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, he is here in Bethany, and people started to come around him. Which brings us up to our passage of the triumphal entry. In verse 12, it says, the next day, right? So you have six days before the Passover, which Friday goes back to Saturday. And then the next day, Palm Sunday, the great crowd that had come for the festival had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And so what we see is the crowd that's following uh, Jesus from Bethany, traveling, you know, under two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives, coming across the Kidron Valley, and entering the gates into the city of Jerusalem. And they're all of a sudden met with the city, Jerusalem, just packed to the gills. That Passover in Jerusalem is one of those destination-type events for people that many, many people put it on their bucket list. They said, I need to celebrate. I've got to do whatever I can to get to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover there. These people, you know, scholars estimate that there may have been as much as two to four million people in Jerusalem, almost quadrupling the, the regular population. And these people are all there for the celebration. They are there. There's no stay-at-home order for them. There's no shelter-in-place restrictions. And to be honest with you, I'm a little jealous for all the celebrating that they got to do that week. Verse 13 goes on to say that they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So you have this massive amount of people gathering together and it almost turns into this ancient championship parade that people start, you know, chanting things together and they start celebrating the entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. People are lining the roads, they're taking palm branches and waving them around and putting them on the street so that Jesus could pass on top of them. And it becomes like this inauguration of a new king. You had people there that may have been just curious onlookers. Hey, I heard what Jesus did in Bethany. I'm going to come check out what's going on. You have people there that are ready to start the revolution, calling Jesus the king of Israel, right? And there was already a king in Israel. This king was, you know, mostly the puppet of the Roman Empire. But when someone else gets called the king of Israel, that is definitely charged with political impact and imagery, Many of these people on the scene that day believed that Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah who would come and lead the people of Israel out of their oppression from the Roman Empire. And on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, 
this crowd didn't really know a whole lot about resurrection, but they sure did know a lot about insurrection. And they showed this conviction that they had with both their words and their actions. The phrases that they used were packed with political meaning. Blessed is the king of Israel. And in their mind that this is the king that's going to deliver us victory. This is how we will win. This is the playbook that God has laid out for us. And some of the things that they said weren't just spur-of-the-moment type things. They had been waiting centuries for the Messiah, and some of their phrases echo what is found in the Old Testament, specifically in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a part of a, a group of six psalms put together called the Hallel Psalms or the Hallel Hymns. Hallelujah, right, means praise God. Hallel means praise. And so these psalms were often used and sung and chanted together when, when the Jewish people gathered together for a celebration, whether that's Passover or other feasts, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so this was a very famous psalm. In fact, at the Last Supper, Right? It's during the time of Passover. Matthew actually records that the disciples and Jesus sang a hymn before they went out to the garden. And this hymn was most likely the Hallel hymn. And what does Psalm 118 say? In verses 25 and 26, it says, O Lord, save us. Hosanna, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. You see, these words were chosen very carefully. And the actions that the people along the streets chose that day were just as deliberate. They took palm branches. They waved them around. They, they put them on the roads. And palm branches in these ancient cultures, many cultures, the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, the Roman culture, represented victory. And so you would have coins that were made, and on one side they were stamped with a palm branch. On the other side, maybe there was uh, an emperor or a war hero. The palm branches signified victory. Maybe it was someone who had passed away, and when they buried the body in their little burial box, they, they sculpted palm branches on them. Clearly the people on this day in Jerusalem were lauding Jesus his entry into Jerusalem, thinking that he would be the one to lead the Jewish revolt against the Romans, right? This is how we are going to win. And it reminds me a lot of the C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe you've heard it about how we are far too easily pleased. Are you familiar with that? C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, and I would add political revolution. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And the crowd here during the triumphal entry is far too easily pleased. They're, they're settling by shoehorning Jesus into this mere political figurehead, this, this revolutionary, they're looking for a victory that is just a fraction of what Jesus actually came to bring humanity. 
this eternal victory, this spiritual victory. And you and I do this too. We do this all the time. We put our hopes and our dreams into the plans and the devices that we've created, and the outcome leaves us underwhelmed. We're far too easily pleased. We, we haven't dreamed God-sized dreams. We've been caught up with selfish ambitions and selfish outcomes. And maybe for you, God is still a piece of the puzzle. You still need Jesus to accomplish some of these things, much like the people here. They needed Jesus to accomplish this revolution against the Romans. But we're still the ones trying to put the puzzle pieces together. We're still the ones trying to take control over what goes where and what the outcome will look like. How many times do we look at our plans and our ambitions and they don't really line up with God's? If, if I'm honest, it, it, happens, it happens a lot. And the level of pride that it takes to get to this place is astounding. Where we get into an attitude of saying, you know what, I'm going to do things my way. I think I can figure this out for myself. I, I don't need God right now. I'll come back to you later. Maybe I'm smarter than God. And that's that prideful seizing of control that we need to get away from. While the crowd was roaring in victory on this, on this Sunday, the triumphal entry, what was Jesus doing? I put this in my notes, so I, I have to say it. Sorry, Jay. Jesus took his donkey to the old town road. In verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And so here, John is referencing a messianic prophecy that's found in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It goes on to say, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus chooses his actions just as deliberately as the crowd has on this day. Jesus chooses to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. The donkey represents humility, and the donkey represents peace. Jesus could have chosen to ride into Jerusalem on a war horse, which would signify that a battle is coming. Maybe that's what everyone wanted him to ride in on. But Jesus chose a donkey, which in a way signifies that the war is already won. The battle is over. Victory is here. And Jesus is communicating. He's saying, I am the king who is coming to proclaim peace. The irony here is that Jesus deserved every bit of celebration for the victory that he was bringing to town that day. But obviously it was in a different way than the people had anticipated. William Barclay writes this, but they looked for the Messiah of their own dreams and their own wishful thinking. They did not look for the Messiah whom God had sent. I wonder, have you ever been misunderstood? Have people misinterpreted your actions or misread your intentions? It doesn't feel very good, does it? Well, this is what was happening to Jesus 
right here. Barclay goes on to write, Jesus approached Jerusalem with the shout of the mob, hailing a conqueror in his ears. And it must have hurt him, for they were looking in him for that very thing which he refused to be. How often do you and I place our own unfair and undue expectations on our Lord? where we expect him to act in a certain way. We, we expect him to act in a certain time frame, to answer our prayers in a certain way, but sometimes they don't even line up with his character, his nature, or his timing. But We see that in this passage, Jesus was consistent. His humility was on display here. He chose the donkey carefully, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes Jesus saying that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus lived a life of humility from beginning to end. Every action that he made was communicating, you know what, this is what God is calling me to, and so this is what I'm going to obey I'm not going to pursue my own path here. I'm not going to pursue a victory that's apart from what God is calling me to. I'm being obedient only to God. And that's what we have to do as well. You and I, we have to be humble. It takes humility to give up that control in our lives. To win on someone else's terms. And these days, humility can be viewed as a sign of weakness but the truth is, humility should be viewed as a sign of wisdom, where we say, not my will, God, but yours be done. And in this passage, you can see like this sliding scale of outcomes, where people are choosing victory based upon the, the pride and the selfish control that they're going after. And you can see Jesus choosing victory through humility, yielding to God. There's also a third option that we're going to look at. And it's just throwing victory out of the equation. And you give in to despair and defeat because of your present circumstances. In John chapter 12, verse 16, it says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. It's so refreshingly honest for John to include this in his account of the triumphal entry because John is admitting, you know what, we, we missed the big picture here. We, we were celebrating the wrong victory. Isn't that the beauty of hindsight? Oftentimes we use hindsight in a negative sense to kind of throw people under the bus for decisions that they've made in the past. We second guess them. We say, I told you so. But John's using hindsight in this situation to say God was doing something that I didn't see in real time. I didn't recognize it when it was happening. And the reality is for you and for me, we don't know how the, the season that we're currently in is going to unfold. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. And I put myself in the shoes of the disciples as they, have, as they are going through Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday but leading up to the crucifixion. Can you imagine the panic that must have been going through their hearts and minds as the victorious Messiah they were celebrating all of a sudden is arrested. 
and put on trial and being marched out to his execution. I mean, you can even read in the gospel accounts how defeated and how um, just desperate the disciples got after Jesus' death. But we know that's not the end of the story. In his book called Praying the Psalms, Walter Brueggemann categorizes our relationship with God in three separate phases. This is what he writes. Our life of faith consists in moving with God in terms of one, being securely oriented, two, being painfully disoriented, and three, being surprisingly reoriented. Securely oriented, painfully disoriented, surprisingly reoriented. This cycle happens all the time in our lives. It happens all throughout Scripture. You can see every single person in Scripture kind of go through this process, especially in the Psalms where Brueggemann highlights. But if you look at the life of the disciples and you think about when they were walking with Jesus during his public ministry, they were securely oriented in their relationship with God. Everything was, was peachy. Everything was going well. They were on the same page. And all of a sudden, they get to Holy Week, and they get to the crucifixion, and they become painfully disoriented. In fact, I would argue that that disorientation started earlier, maybe even on Palm Sunday, when they misread and misunderstood Jesus' mission, and the puzzle wasn't fitting together for them. But we do know, on Resurrection Sunday, these disciples were surprisingly reoriented. I go, this, go through this cycle myself personally, and, and if I'm being honest right now, it's mostly a season of painful disorientation, right? I feel isolated. We're, we're quarantined. I'm, I'm away from my friends. We're, we're stuck at home. Being home with, with my family is something that I, I love, but honestly, at this point, like, there, there needs to be a limit, right? Having two kids at home, we've kind of gone back to a more primitive way of life. We've gotten rid of all of our clocks. There's no a.m. or p.m. anymore. It's just dark time or loud time. And I feel so exhausted, like I, I have barely left the house all month, but I'm so tired. I'm so weary of this season that we're in. I'm isolated from relationships. I'm sick and tired of being on Zoom and seeing people from a distance. I'm not sure if ministry is going well, you know, online. I'm sure many teachers are in this predicament as well. And I feel so out of rhythm. So in this season, when many of us feel painfully disoriented from God, when Christ's victory seems so distant and so foreign from us, let us remember that he came for a different victory. That he came in humility to bring victory over sin and death. Jay mentioned this verse earlier, but a few chapters after the triumphal entry, Jesus was talking with his disciples, and he says in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This verse has given me life right now. I mean, yes, God, like we look around, we see the trouble that we have. Life isn't rosy. We're grieving our world right now, the, the loss of life and the, the danger and the risks that the coronavirus has, has put in front of us. But I choose not to wallow in this defeat or in this despair. 
I choose to trust God in the midst of everything. And that's what I want to encourage all of us to do this week. I want to invite the band to come up, and we're going to sing one more song in response. But as Holy Week continues today and tomorrow and the next day, let us continue to reflect on the sovereignty of God throughout history, not just in what Jesus embodied on that road from Bethany to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but in each and every one of our homes today and this week. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but I know that several years from now, we're going to be able to look back in hindsight and see clearly where God was moving in our midst. And so in the middle of this uncertainty, let us put our hope and our faith in Jesus. We take heart because he has overcome the world. Would you bow your heads at home and close your eyes and pray with me? Jesus, we, we come to you weak and we come to you battered down and broken. We're so grateful for the words that we've been able to sing today, praising you, that you welcome us at your altar that you welcome us with open arms, that you give us hope, that you give us rest, that you give us comfort, and you give us peace. And I'm so grateful for this triumphal entry passage that talks about the victory that you are winning in the midst of our confusion and in the midst of our unfair expectations. God, remind us of who you are and what you are winning and how that impacts our life. And as we sing this next song, Lord, I pray that it is out of, uh, out of courage, out of faith, out of trust, that we celebrate this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Well, thank you for joining us here on the Sunday morning. Happy Palm Sunday to you and your family, your loved ones. You know, Palm Sunday is this reminder that an unexpected victory can come in the midst of all these painful and confusing circumstances, in the midst of technical difficulties, in the midst of job insecurity, in the midst of a global pandemic. We still trust the God who made us. We trust in his goodness and his sovereignty that he has a victory for us if we continue to be faithful to him. And so that's my prayer for you this week. I hope you join us next Sunday for Easter. And uh, this will be a great time if you've got your family gathered together to take those videos and send us in your greetings to Aaron. Uh, but we love you. We're grateful to worship with you. And have a great day.
Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.